We're going to have our first message by Mr. Reg Noland, Beyond Language, the Miracle of Communication. Too often I hear the complaint, why aren't there any miracles anymore? Now, it's true. We don't see people rising from the dead, being instantaneously healed of lifelong diseases, walking on water, changing water into fine wine. We don't see animals walking two by two into a big boat or fire uh, coming down from heaven and igniting a water-soaked altar or axe heads floating on water or a crowd of 5,000 being fed with five loaves of bread and two fishes or an ass talking. Wait, I take that one back. We do still have politicians. Uh, Nevertheless, there are miracles occurring around us every second, uh, but they are so commonplace that we do not appreciate them as such. Life itself is a miracle, and all of its constituent parts, such as thinking, seeing, hearing, feeling, touching. I know that many women consider it a miracle that their husbands are housebroken. <laughs> okay, finally, uh, however, if you really think about it, something that we all mostly take for granted is one of the greatest miracles of all. That's human communication. The ability to transfer cognitive constructs, that is thoughts, ideas, feelings, skills, knowledge, information, wisdom, those sorts of things, mental constructs, from one entity to another, from one generation to another, through this miracle of language is nothing short of miraculous. Today, through the foolishness of preaching, itself a form of language, I want to guide you through a brief exploration of the miracle um, of language and its implication as reflected in the scripture and current brain research. Okay. All right. First, there is an, before we be started on this, there is an aspect of communication that has very little to do with the role of language, though. Rather, it has everything to do with common courtesy. When engaged in a conversation, we need to give the other person our complete attention to actually listen to what he is saying and or politely disengage from the conversation if you're an introvert like me. Uh, too often, especially with spouses, we zone out and tune out the other, reducing their entire spiel to this background, dr background drone of noise that you hear in the background, you're just listening to it, and they're not saying a thing, and you hear, pay, pay no attention to what they're saying, there's void of content, it's a drone. Too often, we, we void, it becomes nothing but a drone, devoid of content. While staring blankly at our partner, we're actually engaged in things like making lists, reviewing last night's ball game, thinking about upcoming appointments, listening to the music that's playing in our heads, planning our contribution to the conversation as soon as we get a chance to jump in at their diatribe. <clears throat> we also need to make the effort to communicate with others, especially if the content of that communication could affect the other person's plans. With all the social media, the emails, the text messages, the phone messages, the phone cells that are now available, there's really very little excuse for not notifying others if you can't make a meeting, a practice, or appointment. Rick, Sherry, and Brian are still having trouble getting speakers and song leaders to give them the titles and scripture references for the messages or the song list before Sunday, Sabbath morning. I'm sure that Lawrence would like to know about the absences uh, from Bible study, just instead of waiting to see who shows up. 
I feel certain that Matthew and Ray would appreciate knowing whether people are going to, enough people are going to come and attend the practice uh, to make the practice even worthwhile. On the other hand, the group leaders need to communicate with the members of the group any essential information, such as whether or not practice is canceled. Uh, I must say, and if you give him his due, uh, Matthew has, greatly, has generally been very good at keeping the praise and worship team apprised of um, practice and performance status. He texts us regularly to encourage us to come to practice or to inform us of cancellation due to illness, inclement weather, or the night off. I appreciate that courtesy. Even though I haven't yet gotten used to the idea of carrying around a cell phone, it's rather new to me still. And uh, I sometimes miss his messages. But they're there, waiting on the phone, just as soon as I get around to checking them. <clears throat> In truth, as a church, we really don't communicate all that well. We really don't. Uh, it is truly a miracle and the evidence that God's hand is upon us that things here run as smoothly as they do. Some of you are a nexus of information. You are like the brain cells, if you will. All the news flows into you. And you're a hub, like a neuron, like a brain cell. And like a hub, you dispense it then to the appropriate parties. You are like the brain cell, the neuron of the church. We need you. We need you to keep the lines of communication open. And we pray that you remain godly and not, never abuse the information to which you're privileged. Okay? This is the neuron here. This is the... Let's see who get the thing right. This is the, the neuron here. Notice this is called a myelin sheath. It's a, a basically, it's a, a layer of fatty tissue that surrounds the neuron here, which transmits the messages down the brain. These are, this is the cell body here itself, the neuron, and these are dendrites that are receiving the messages from other cells, and then they, the cell body sorts it out and transmits the message on to others and send it out to appropriate uh, either other brain cells or neurons or to muscle cells along the way. You're like that. You are the neuron. You dispense the information. Gather all the information from all the different places and then dispense it to the right places. Okay, those of you who know me well know that as an educator, I am fascinated by the workings of the human mind and by the role that language plays in the epistemology in particular. Language, like many other functions of the brain, is highly localized. That is to say, it recurs in the same brain location regardless of what language is spoken. Consider this universality of human anatomy. We all have the same basic equipment in our heads but many speak entirely different languages based upon our cultural environment and milieu. Even within the technically what is the same language, dialectical idiosyncrasy makes interdialectal communication difficult. For example, there's a world of difference between BRP, American, South, Amer South African, Indian, and Aussie versions of English. Even within the American version of English, Regional dialects often inhibit communication. Imagine a guy from the Bronx in New York City trying to understand a lunchtime conversation between the citizens, the denizens of that forsaken land south of the Red River. Looks like this. Gee, not you. Fix it too, you wanna come? All right. Now, if you understood this exchange, 
as one person's uh, invitation for another to join him for the noonday meal, then you speak, or at least understand, the redneck dialect of Texas, which is not only a whole other country, but it's also a different variant of the English language. And we haven't even considered the interlanguage hybrid of Tex-Mex Spanglish, uh, spoken throughout the Rio Grande corridor and numerous other pockets in the Texas population. Also, consider the plasticity of the brain. This is an important chart. I'm going to talk and you look at the chart and see what's going on. Because all normal human beings are born with the same basic brain, any healthy child can learn multiple languages concurrently before about age five and be fluent in all of them, effortlessly switching between the languages at a subconscious level, actually thinking within the language. In fact, until about age seven months, the infant is considered to be a citizen of the world and able to learn any language in his environment to which he's regularly exposed. However, something strange happens about the 11th month. About the 11th month, the child's brain has identified its primary language, and uh, then so from that point on, the child understands that world through the linguistic and perceptual filters of that culture. Further, from about age five or six, the hundred billion, and that's that many, a hundred billion neurons that comprise the baby's brain are growing dendrites in all directions, making a plethora of connections between the neurons on the order of a trillion, trillion connections. That's more stars than there are in the Milky Way galaxy. <clears throat> and as long as the brain keeps those connections and pathways active, they remain intact. However, as you see on the chart above, about age five or six or so, somewhere in that neighborhood, the brain with an almost draconian ruthlessness prunes itself of these connections that are not frequently uh, used in order to make the brain more efficient. So those pre-kindergarten years in a child's life, before the brain's self-pruning, are the formative years, and they largely determine the boundaries of the child's potential. So those years need to be as rich as the parents can possibly make them in order to maximize the child's skill set. That radical pruning also inhibits the development of other skills. For example, children not exposed to or very limited exposure to any form of music during those years may become tone deaf as an adult and un unable to ever to sing on pitch. Okay? However, exposure to music is more critical than not being merely able, not being able to sing. For the brain later uses some of those same pathways uh, for music and for computation and math. And good math skills are often the gateway to a better paying job. Now, math, unlike some, math is usually thought of as a left hemisphere function, but it's actually this scattered, uh, spread out throughout much of the brain. For example, geometry and spatial reasoning and things are province of the right-hand side of the brain. Computation of the parietal lobe, several different um, along the way. By the way, um, researchers suggest that Baroque music, because of its elegant mathematical structure, may be the best form of music to encourage the development of those mathematical pathways. Okay. Okay. How's our brain organized? Our brain is a bicameral brain. Uh, it's made up of, if you look out here, oops, wrong. Okay. Uh, this, this is the left hemisphere, 
Let me go back. Let's go to the right hemisphere first. Because I'm going to be focusing primarily on the left hemisphere. I'm going to talk about the right hemisphere first. Okay, on the left hemisphere, uh, this will be the front of the, since we're looking at it from the right-hand side, this will be the front of the brain. This will be the back of the brain. In the back of the brain, you can see the occipital lobe is used for vision. Uh, this is the cerebellum down below. This is for muscle coordination, um, involuntary function, things of this nature. On the right-hand side, we have a lot of things like music, memory, visual memory, emotional memory. Here's the bits about math, uh, like uh, touch, awareness, rotating objects, construction, navigation, those sorts of things. Those are mathematical skills, essentially. Music and harmony here. See how close these are together? That's why they use on the same pathways. Um, here's an interesting thing. Uh, in the imagination and creativity in the, in the frontal lobes, this is for creating uh, particular patterns of behavior. These are doing behaviors, creative doing behaviors. This is uh, inhibitions. Uh, saying no effectively. What not to do. This is right hand or uh, right or wrong behavior, manners, conscience, all of that's on the right hand side of the brain. It's what not to do. So the emphasis is on the doing. Okay. In the left hemisphere, now since we're working at the left hemisphere, then this is the front of the brain. This is the uh, back of the brain. So this is, again, the occipital lobe over here. And the occipital lobe, again, is vision primarily. So, but in the left-hand side, the occipital lobe recognizes letters and symbols and other things and interprets those and then transfers those into language, into words, and then in, in, from words, it goes and fetches things from the memory. This is like face memory, emotional memory, language memory, symbol memory, and then those sounds go back into this area. This area here is very, very critical. It's the Wernicke area of the brain, a, a starting place for almost all of language. And then we move from there into other areas. Notice over here in the front of the brain, this is what uh, not to say, worrying about what you're saying, whereas this is the imaginative portion of the creativity portion as well. So we've got all of those aspects of the brain working here together. There's an overview of the left hemisphere. As I said, I'm focusing primarily on the left hemisphere because it is the location of the brain. This is Wernicke's area that I was mentioning earlier. This is the major center, uh, one of two major centers for language, this one, and Broca's area here. Those are two major centers for area. Now, if you're having the spoken word, the language goes from the auditory cortex here into Wernicke's area, then it goes to the Broca's area, then it jumps over to the prefrontal uh, cortex where we can make decisions. If you're doing reading or written language, then it has to go through an extra step of being seen by the eyes, translated here, with the symbols and recognized in the parietal lobe, and then transferred into uh, Wernicke's area before it can jump over to Broca's. Uh, Broca's area. So there's a lot of complexity involved in this, right? Uh, this is just the overstructures, the superstructures. All right, so let's pick up here. Uh, cognitive skills, such as the logical, the analytical, the mathematical, the verbal, linguistic, writing skill, list-making, linear, causal, time, scientific reasoning, they're all provinces of the left hemisphere of the brain. OK, 
okay? Whereas things like artistic skills, spatial reasoning, intuition, ethical judgment, music, expression of emotions, holistic reasoning, uh, holistic judgment, among others, are located in the right hemisphere. So, Barnabas, I guess that means that you're in your right mind and I'm not. Well, of course, you guys already knew that, right? Yeah, okay. Back up. All right. Now, let us consider what is involved in an auditory communication between two people. Psycho, uh, psycholinguist Noam Chomsky suggests that thoughts begin as kernels of meaning in the deep structure of the brain and become electrical signals that are passed through the brain to become manifest in the primary language of the speaker with appropriate lexicons or words, uh, morphology, that's the little endings, the suffixes and prefixes, declensions, and uh, syntax. When a message is heard, it enters the brain through that auditory cortex, which we saw a moment ago, uh, and then lands in Wernicke's area, which then attaches meaning and images and feelings to the words and the sounds of the words. Reading, as I said, is a little bit more complex as it has to be interpreted by the, the uh, visual cortex before it can be translated into words, which then can be translated into meaning. So there's a lot of com complex translation going on here. Our brains have to translate the written symbols, written symbolic representation of words into auditory equivalent before we can understand them. But either way, uh, verbal and other messages start their journey in the same warming up place, that is Wernicke's area. Wernicke's area then passes the words along to Broca's area, which scans the words to see if they fit any kind of similar patterns that is stored in the past. By the way, Broca's area lies uh, in in the left hemisphere, just over the southeast corner of the motor, motor association cortex, it's the brain's uh, center for action words. It produces verbs, it builds sentences, uh, arranges and interprets the words. That's syntax, by the way, not the levy on your naughtiness. Um, but according to the syntax of the primary language, and it predicts what people are going to say. Broca's area is also the gatekeeper for, because it's only a short distance away from, that prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is that center of judgment and decision making in the brain. Okay. Uh, Broca's area then leapfrogs the arranged, organized message over the motor cortex area to the prefrontal cortex, that's just behind the forehead. When the words are in the same when the same old, same old usual patterns, then the brain anticipates what's coming next, adapts a ho-hum message and uh, attitude and reduces the level of concentration, looking for perhaps other more meaningful thoughts or interesting thoughts at least. Like, Ken's getting bored already. Uh, what, but what if the speaker can find a way to deliver the message in a way that stands out as a little bit different from Broca's usual pattern? If he can surprise the Broca area, then he has a much, much better chance of maintaining the audience's attention and getting the prefrontal cortex to take some kind of action. Given this complex brain structure, that we communicate at all is a miracle. That we can do it so efficiently is phenomenal. Okay, here's what the, what's going on in the communication. We have some idea, some concept, we have to find the right words to express it. Then they have to find that way of communicating to someone else with the same lexicon, the same body of uh, words work with here. And they have to then hear the word and then translate it into the image. Problem is that 
we need feedback in order to make that communication work because this person might start out with a deciduous tree and this person might think of a conifer. So they have to get feedback in order to make sure that there is a communication going on in the process. Okay. Here's some other structures in the brain. As I said, these are the primary structures that we're working with. This is Wernicke's area that I was talking about earlier. This is Broca's area. Here's the, they jump from here to here and then into the prefrontal cortex again, okay. These are, the, these are the seven key components of the brain. These, those are the seven areas of the brain that are identified with producing language in the Wernicke-Gershwin uh, model. And this is the function of the brain. Uh, here is, again, Wernicke's area, which is noun association. It hears the words and gives meaning to it. Notice how close it is to the temporal lobe where all our memory is stored. It draws out the information from that, then, produce, then transfers that over to the Broca's area again. Broca's area then arranges it into the syntax for the language and then jumps it past the motor cortex into the prefrontal cortex. A very complex set of structures that we've got here working. Even for something as simple as a sentence as the sky is blue, we have to have noun retrieval, color retrieval, verb action, recognizing the relationship verb is here. We have to form the sentence and jump it over. All sorts of complex, in even such a simple sentence as the sky is blue. Okay. From the Tower of Babel, the gift of the Holy Spirit, to the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost 31 AD, communication through language has played a significant role in Scripture. Apparently, before the story of the Tower of Babel, all human beings spoke the same language. Did you realize that? Okay. Let's look at the account in Genesis uh, 11, 1 to 9. Here we go. And the whole earth was of one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and dwelt there. And they said to one another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they, and they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach up to heaven. Let us make us a name. It's a key phrase. Let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to the city and the tower, which the, men have, uh, the children of men had built. Okay. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down and confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build a city. Therefore the name of it is called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad in all the face of the earth. I can imagine being called Babel. Okay, anyway. Uh, all right. In the story of the Tower of Babel, God may come off as the bad guy here, restricting human progress by confounding human language. But is he really the bad guy? Now, human nature is inherently selfish, greedy, ambitious. If our ancestors had been left with a universal language, then we would probably have progressed scientifically, developing the left hemisphere much more, much more quickly than we would have... Um, develop the emotional and the ethical portions of the brain, the 
right hemisphere portions, that would require wisdom and time in order to develop. That's the ethical part. Can we use it properly? We can do it, but can we use it properly? Here, hence, we would have developed things like gunpowder, steam power, fossil fuels, electricity, and nuclear energy long before we were able to control them responsibly, just because we could. That's the mantra of any science nerd, because we could, because we could. Our Heavenly Father had the wisdom and the foresight to delay our intellectual development by confounding our languages in order to preserve us in order to preserve us until we could reach maturity as a race, to keep us from killing ourselves in our infancy with our own inventions. Just as my loving father knew better than to give his eight-year-old son the chemistry sets, electronic construction kits, and a nuclear energy lab that he so desperately wanted, lest he hurt himself by experimenting unsupervised, as I'm sure I would have, just so our Heavenly Father delayed our development as a race long enough for his plan for mankind to come to fruition. Imagine all the world communicating in the same language with no miscommunication due to different vocabularies or grammar, no misunderstanding because of inflections or syntax, no unintended insults resulting from the improper translation of another's language, no ambiguity in meaning. Then we could literally say what we mean and mean what we say. But that's a whole different thing. Uh, that kind of communication would be the closest thing to direct transfer of thought, almost like mental telepathy. Such a people could achieve marbles or could annihilate one another because a universal language could help you to progress scientifically but would not necessarily develop the ethical needs that we need to keep us from killing one another. It was no guarantee against hurt feelings or injured egos, the major cause of many wars. And then only the, the affronts that we would have would be deliberate affronts instead. To confound our language, God would need to make only minor changes in the systematic structure of our brain. Language difficulties called aphasia most commonly correlate with dysfunctions in Wernicke's area, that's difficulty understanding words, or dysfunctions in Broca's area, which is difficulty understanding syntax. But either dysfunction could interrupt communication in fact, it wouldn't even take that much, that, that extreme an idea. If, for example, a child does not hear certain sounds uh, called phonemes during in infancy, then he will not be able to hear them or to produce them as an adult. Certain sounds are unique to a particular or, or peculiar to a specific languages. Hence, they become earmarks of a people and could be used as a password to identify friend or fro. The Ephraimites, for example, could not pronounce the S-H sound. The, um, and so the warriors of Gilead could use that pronunciation uh, of the word shibboleth as a password to identify their enemies. Okay. Judges 12, verses 5 and 6. And the Gileads took the fords of Jordan before the Ephraimites, and it happened that when one of those Ephraimites who had escaped said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? And he said, no. And they said to him, please say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, because he could not manage to pronounce it right. Okay. They took him and killed him at the passage of Jordan, and there fell 42,000 of the Ephraimites. So not being able to pronounce something right could have important consequences. Okay, all right. 
Now, let us consider the reverse. Suppose that God had a message so important that it needed to be communicated exactly, without error, from one mind to another. It would have to bypass all the constraints of language centers in the brain so that the meaning, both semantic and connotative, of that thought would be transferred from one mind to another almost telepathically. Such a message, the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's plan of salvation for mankind, was transmitted in just such a manner on Pentecost 31 AD. For the miracle of communication occurred not only in the speaking, but also in the hearing of the word. So we're back, we're going to look at Acts 2 in here in a moment, but this time in the light of the, structure, the language structures in the brain. First, I want to clear up a misconception about the logistics of the events that happened in Pentecost 31 AD. On a casual reading of Acts 2, one might think that all the apostles are on stage speaking simultaneously, yet everyone in the audience hears them in his native tongue. Didn't happen that way. But this scenario would create a den of confusion if everyone were speaking at the same time. And we know that God is not the author of confusion. 1 Corinthians 14.33 tells us that. But uh, he's, uh, he's the, not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. And he likes order and structure. It's, that's evidenced by his creation, even down to the subatomic level, where things that appear to be random and chaotic are in reality iterations of fractal patterns that we have. Then we must conclude that such a scenario, have everyone on the stage speaking at the same time, that has to be wrong. Rather, the, Pentecost, uh, the program of Pentecost 31 AD will be very much to our, similar to our CGOM uh, conference schedules, where the ministers speak sequentially or in a panel discussion, each speaker taking his turn to address the crowd. Let's look at it now. Okay. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, when they were, all, uh, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And tongues of fire appeared unto them, being distributed, and it set upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And dwelling at Jerusalem, there were Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. Uh, but this sound occurring, the, multiple, the multitude came together and were confounded, because they each heard uh, them speaking in their own dialect. Not just their own language, even their own dialect. Uh, and they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Behold, are not these all who speak Galileans? And how do we each hear them in our own dialect in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and uh, Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, uh, Phrygia and uh, Pamphylia and in Egypt and parts of Libya and Cyrene and the strangers of Rome and Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them speaking the great things of God in our own languages. Why is this so important? Why is this so important? I don't know. I don't doubt that the apostles may have spoken in a language uh, that they did not know. But what really amazes me is that each of the members of the crowd heard them in his native tongue, even down to the local dialect. That level of communication could occur only if we bypass the language centers of the brain entirely and engage direct thought transfer from mind to mind, devoid of all the constraints of individual tongues.
to the casual observer or even a participant. It may appear that the apostles were speaking in one language while the members of the crowd were understanding in another. But when in reality, what was happening was that the there was direct thought transfer from one mind to another. The apostles spoke not only to express their thoughts, but to generate their thoughts. For we can think only which that, we, that which we can say. Language is by nature creative and generative as a vehicle of expression. However, the communication between the attendees took place mind to mind as well. Note that the communication was not just one way, not only from the apostles to the crowd, for members of the crowd were also conversing with one another and were being even understood even though they were speaking uh, languages from different regions. They spoke uh, different dialects and not completely different languages. The miracle of the tongues of fire of Pentecost in 31 AD was a recorded, uh, one, of, one of the first recorded incidences of mental telepathy. That's my assertion here. While this, if I had a cowbell, I'd ring it. While this was not the last uh, occurrence of uh, speaking in tongues, for example, there are other examples in Acts 10, 46 and 19, 6, it was the only time that speaking of tongues was accompanied by tongues of fire descending on the heads of the participants, probably on the left hemisphere where the language center was. Indeed, speaking in tongues became commonplace enough that Paul had to establish some guidelines for it in his first letter to the Corinthians. That's in 1 Corinthians 14, if you want to read that. So what made uh, Pentecost 31 so special that it warranted such a, a spectacular miracle as mass mental telepathy? Acts 2, think about what Acts 2 does. It records the birth of the church, and those attendees would go forth as vanguards into all the world, spreading the gospel, carrying with them the most important message that this world has ever received. Isn't it important that it be correct? Isn't it important that they all be the same message that goes forth? It was critical that they all go forth with the exact same message, even though it's carried in 3,000 vessels resounding with many different languages. To ensure the integrity of the message without the distortions inherent in language, the meaning of that message had to be transmitted mind to mind. Nothing less would be sufficient. Notice also that no one asked for clarification. That's rare, isn't it? Try to get into communication, no one asked for clarification. The message was received in a language that each understood, with words that each understood, in a syntax that was unambiguous and clear. Not all attempts at communications have these virtues. Language has two principal purposes, to express one's ideas and to communicate with one another. It's not hard to imagine a speaker who believes he has chosen exactly the precise words to express his thoughts, yet the audience does not understand what is a word he says? This happens to me all the time <laughs> at school. And here, too, I probably suspect. I will express a concept in very precise mathematical language, highly qualified, restricted to preclude any anomalies, only to discover that no one understood a word I said. It went so far over their heads, it didn't even part their hair. They didn't even feel the breeze. Sometimes I'll have a brighter student in the classroom translate into teenager, which is a completely different language entirely, so that others can understand it. 
However, I don't do that very frequently because often the translation is so vague, so nebulous, so imprecise that I can't stand to listen to it. Um, at those times, I fear that I may be like Paul's uncertain trumpet of 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 8 through 11. Just speaking to the wind. Granted that this passage is actually in reference to unknown tongues, I think it still applies to someone whose vocabulary and syntax is inappropriate for the receiving audience. For if a trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for the battle? So also you, if you do not give a clear word through the language, how will it be known what is being said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. That means distinction or distinctiveness. Therefore, if, you, if I do not know the power of the sound, I will be a foreigner to him speaking, and he speaking will be a foreigner to me. It's, now, it's not that I'm trying to be obtuse. Rather, it goes back to the dual purpose of language, to express oneself and to communicate with one another. Sometimes, depending upon the audience, the best language I can use to express my ideas is not always the best language in which to communicate them. We have trouble communicating, even though we may speak the same language or some variant of it. Okay. Now, imagine the world tomorrow with all God's children through all time and space gathered together with thousands of language and cultures among us, with thousands of ages between us, We've all fantasized about sitting down with figures from biblical history and inquiring of them what happened and how they felt. But how are we going to ask questions of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and of course Jesus, when they and we do not speak the same language? We would need a universal language that transcends culture. Time, semantic, vocabulary, phonology, morphology, syntax, and connotation. We would need a language that would allow a direct thought transfer from mind to mind without the barriers imposed by conventional language, much like what happened on Pentecost 31 AD. That language, I propose, is telepathy. It's one of our gifts in God's kingdom. Be careful what you think. Who knows well, who's listening?